I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're on Team Human, conscious intervention in the machine, a chance to call upon our collective nervous system, develop a more profound capacity for compassion, bear witness to what is. If we're going to be heartbroken, let's at least be heartbroken together. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, it's Team Human. Another hour in the kibitz room. It's time to intervene on behalf of people and all living things. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the kibitz room of Halloween 2023. It's been a, uh, a really strange few weeks, uh, sad few weeks, violent few weeks, awful. And uh, I've been... Uh, as sad as I am by the uh, the human suffering, I've also been uh, saddened by the sort of the brittle reaction people in America and very far away have had to these events. There's been a very social media style binary blame game going on that after leaving social media, which I did, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, it's all the more stark. It's interesting how much the social media media environment, that aspect of the digital media environment, really does impact how we do our cognition. And I guess I'm as guilty as anyone or as susceptible as anybody to the effects of media. I mean, how could I not be? I evolved in basically the same era as everybody else. But leaving it, even for this short amount of time, it's just made so many different kinds of things clearer or my response to them, much more resilient. I feel much more like an old person now, but in the good way of an old person. So 
Well, we'll see how long that lasts. Um, I was originally going to say this is, you know, Team Human. Let's not get all bogged down in anything. But whatever comes up, whatever's coming up for you now is fine to talk about. This is a safe space, meaning it's a safe space for the most dangerous ideas. And anybody who's already a supporter of Team Human, obviously, is someone who understands necessary self and respect of others that we would employ in any kind of situation. So, yay. Thanks for being here. And um, let's see what what you all got. To people who are not here or don't even know how to get here, this here, the Kibitz Room on the Team Human Discord server is just one of the many benefits you get from being a full Team Human supporting subscriber, which you all can do at patreon.com slash teamhuman or teamhuman.fm and click on support. You would be welcome additions to these conversations and all the other fun parties and things that we do. Like just two nights ago, we're at Caveat Lounge in the East Village of New York and had a wonderful evening with Mitch Horowitz. People even got free books. I mean, this is as good as it gets. Live, live love, intellectual, occult conversation and free books. I mean, that's my picture of heaven. So with that, Brenna, I love starting out with a brilliant musician like like you and animator and artist and everything. So, hey, welcome. Hey, I wanted to bring in something to affirm about this group that I'm grateful for since things are heavy. And I was thinking about your monologue in the Parliament of Fowls. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wanted to talk about the flip side of that, mm-hmm. which is people providing lateral support to other people. And I kind of wanted to do it in the broad context of prey animal behavior. And then also as something I watched recently, which was your friend Greg Barris's YouTube special, DP Links. Uh-huh. So I worked at a botanical garden for a year and it was kind of a nightmare. It was this nonprofit, but they had this corporate growth kind of mindset. And I was just under pressure to overwork people and it felt predatory. So I just kind of put all that work on myself. But the way that I coped with it was that on my lunch breaks, I would go out into this quiet part of the garden that was oak forest. And we had a resident herd of deer and I would just go looking for them. And the thing that I learned is that there's a pattern to approaching prey animals. And that thing is that you can't make a beeline for them. You have to move laterally at these 90 degree angles and you don't fixate on any one deer. And then you just kind of pick up on this rhythm. So you do a little bit of movement and then you stop. And then you kind of crunch the leaves to mimic grazing and it makes them feel safe. Mm-hmm. But the thing that struck me with Greg's special is that his approach to doing crowd work with people is that same rhythm, which is kind of unusual for a stand-up. And I think it's a really good example of giving people agency while you're holding a little bit of power. So a lot of it is approaching people with a lot of very personal questions, but he does them laterally in a zigzag. He doesn't linger on any one person for too long. And there's no... um like stalking behavior. He's pulling that focus and vulnerability back to himself as much as he can. And then our kind of human version of grazing is telling stories and jokes because it kind of, you know, no one's going to pounce on you in the middle of telling a story. So it builds in these recognizable moments of safety. But I thought it was really cool. But the the funny thing is that mm. I realized that my my memory is that you recommended Greg to me, but you actually just mentioned him in passing, which is a lateral move. And if you'd said like, hey, Brenna, you should watch this, I might not have done it. <laughs> uh. I know that's dumb, but I'm just like, I feel like, in, like I'm in such a reactive place with this, like, you know, don't tell me what to do. It becomes like a thing that I have to manually override. 
And I think we're all kind of in that place, but it's really hard not to be directive and, and you don't get immediate results. <laughs> the result of that conversation is that two months later, I, I like briefly saw Greg at a show and I went, oh, it's Douglas's friend. Maybe I'll look him up. And that's like Aww. so, it's so granular and tiny and it's thankless and you don't know if it's going to help anybody, but it's so critical right now. And I just, I wanted to take this time to just say out loud that when you or the people in our little network put that care into their words, I, I notice it and I appreciate it. That's really interesting. Yeah. The lateral moving makes makes so much sense. Plus that last little thing about you kind of model their behavior is interesting. It's almost like a uh, what NLP people would call like mirroring, you know, or Ericksonian hypnosis. You do what they do and and cuz you're showing you're showing rapport. And but I know in the in the animal sense you're just oh, you're one of those grazing types. Like lions don't graze, right? Lions stalk. So if you're another grazer, then you're okay. But this lateral thing for me it's taken the the form of trying to not like be great or anything, but to sort of model behaviors rather than prescribe them, you know, to say, oh, look, I've got all upset on social media and this happened. I'm going to leave for this, for my own thing. You know, I think it's the best idea. I think you all should do it too, but I'm not prescribing. It's just for me, I'll see you around. This is how to reach me. It's a little bit a little bit different. Or it's like when they say, um, if you're from a, a religion that wants to proselytize or that the best thing you can do is just be happy and people will ask you, why are you, <laughs> why are you so happy? Oh, I joined AA. You know, I stopped drinking. Oh, really? What's that like? That it's so much better than, um, or it works so much better, particularly now when people are so concerned for their own agency and being influenced. Yeah, it's subtle. And then what it really makes me think about, and this is what I've been wrestling with lately, is whether anything scales, or at least whether anything scales without a corresponding loss. Mm. I was reading uh, Tyson Yunkaporta, who I've had on, an Australian indigenous scholar and, and person, wrote a new book. And in it, he was talking about how whenever he tries to take an idea, you know, or a story, and then express it in written words, he has to sacrifice all of the place-based and specific reality of it. Like when Walter Benjamin talks about in, in the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction, that when you take a piece of art out of the context where it was born, like out of the cathedral and put it in a museum, you lose the aura. It's sort of that specificity that goes away. And then it started to make me think about sort of the Jewish project, which was, you know, as we got kicked out of places, you know, I don't mean we, but we Jews, you know, centuries ago, or even more recently, our strategy was, well, look, let's write it all down. If we write it down, then we could take it on the road. So we lose that kind of oral history of, oh, on that hill over there in Sinai, this happened, and over here, that happened, which is really essential in Tyson's worldview, because stories cannot be divorced from the places where they are. You're, you're telling stories about seasons and animals and textures and things that that don't make the same kind of sense 
outside of that, but that the Jewish project was to sort of universalize or, or metaphoricize these essential truths so that they would be applicable everywhere and anywhere, you know, that abstract God rather than a local God and abstract ideas and ideals, but that this this way that they get abstracted and disconnected from the world, eventually people living in real places want blood and soil. They want something, you know, there. They want something tactile. They want something that's related to real life. And that's not all it's not all bad, right? That's partly real and located and situated. So I've been really looking at the question that you raised sort of from that perspective of when we try to scale, you know, when we do we lose the ability and how do we lose the ability to go lateral like that? And then how do we comp, how can we compensate for it? So do I do more good just walking around my town being as nice as I can to everybody else? Do I do more good through that than I do locking myself away and writing, <laughs> writing some book where I'm trying to somehow, I mean, every book has some sort of lie to it. There's something untrue about anything but but kind of a direct storytelling. Or at least if it's not untrue, it's compromised. And I feel like I've got to now more than ever be aware of what you're saying, the way in which those compromises end up alienating the, the person I'm trying to communicate to and actually doing the opposite of approachability. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a tricky one, right? It's a tricky one, right? Because here we are, you know, here we are. I'm on a fucking scaled media here. If not that scaled, luckily, I mean, this is not Rogan style. And then when I realize that when I see a mean tweet or something about this show or something, I'm like, oh, good. It's not for everybody. You know, that's actually a good thing, not a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. It's hard, but I like that. I like that. I'm going to think about that lateral motion. Lateral. I use lateral logic that way, but I never thought of it as lateral motion and slow. And Greg is, I mean, everyone should look, everyone must look at his thing. I command. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a really, he is wonderful at that. And then when the audience is stiff, he kind of admits his own things to sort of get the ball rolling on um, that vulnerability. And it's, it's a talent, but again, it's not for everyone. I was just I'm texting with him last night about, you know, and I'm concerned, why isn't he more known? Why isn't he more successful? Right. And it's, it's tricky because he's on a slower path, which is ultimately a, hopefully a better one. Yeah. So thank you, Brenna. Thanks for, and thanks for being first and, and starting yeah, things in you. that, in that, in exactly the thing I've been wondering about lately, but you came with an answer to my question, which is way nicer than just me having to have an answer for <laughs> someone else's. It was good. Thank you. <laughs> Hey, Lindsay. Hey, Douglas. Hi, everyone. How's it going? It's going. It's going okay. <laughs> better than better. Better now. Better than than yesterday. Yeah. I want to say thanks so much for the discussion today and for your most recent monologue as well. Uh, I'm joining you from Toronto today. Beautiful. Where you're all so safe and smart. So what I've been smart. wondering about. Uh, yeah, somewhat. <laughs> it's been chaos here, actually. <laughs> There's been protests every day and and a poster campaign with. Um, people's faces, but I'll leave that aside for the moment. Maybe it will come through in the question I have, but it's been intense. So yeah, I, I've been recently uh, made aware of your work in the last few months. So I'm so grateful to join Team Human to find oh, my people. <laughs> and I've been wondering uh, probably for the last year and a half, actually, about what you just did in, in quitting Twitter. And I guess I'm wondering, is there any point in staying on these platforms right now? And if I stay on social media, I'm struggling with whether I'm complicit. 
because it's it's like I'm saying, hey, Meta, I now consent. I'm cool with you training your AI and my words and images. And, and I'm okay with you making advertising money off of me while simultaneously blocking me from sharing my own work, actual news on the platform. As a media and culture scholar myself, uh, having worked as a journalist and a PR consultant, is it even ethical to recommend social media as a tool? I'd love social media and the power it seemed to offer in the beginning to be heard outside of government and corporate gatekeepers. And I loved it so much that I helped champion professionals to get in the space uh, from underheard nonprofits to already famous actors, not really knowing the full ramifications. And now I see with what the platforms have become, the public's discourse, you know, it just doesn't work at scale, I'd agree, at least not in its current form. And self-promotion seems to have gone way too far. I like to say from no logo to becoming your own logo. So mm. all my friends, you know, they understand, but they were also refused to leave the space. And some of them suggested I use my account to share cult countercultural ideas uh, similar to you and and use uh, Substack. I've been writing. I wrote recently on the social media Canadian news ban, and I'm doing one now on disengaging from what I've heard called the algorithmic fog of war. So irony of trying to share that in a space like social media. So yeah, I'm just wondering what to do if uh, it's worth trying to continue trying to engage on these platforms. I'm trying to do it in real life, but you know, a lot of friends will say, traffic, weather, spending money. Uh, why don't we just FaceTime? <laughs> and so I keep pushing. I'm not giving up on the real world, but I really don't even want to go on social media. I don't want to be subjected to this timeline that's determined by an algorithm. And I don't want to see, you know, I have the privilege of not seeing some of the most gruesome images of war, but then also being denied the reporting and the context and sharing that. So yeah, I've been trying to take a break, titrating my intake and wondering you know what else to do uh, while recommending that others do the same. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. So, yeah, do you have any advice for us and Team Human? Should we follow your lead or keep going in various directions? Um, what's your perspective at this point? Well, there's so many different things at play, right? So there's what some people feel, and may, they may be correct, is the professional requirement of maintaining a presence on the generic, scaled, global social media networks. So, mm -hmm. and there is a reality to it where if like you're a new author and you've written some articles on Medium or wherever else, and you 
send a book proposal to a publisher, it is an advantage to have a large social media following, right? Or if you are auditioning to be in the chorus of a Broadway show, they will look and see if you have a large social media following. If you want to be in the chorus and you've already got 200,000 people watching your TikToks, they know that a large number of those 200,000 people will buy tickets to see the show. And in a thousand seat theater, an extra 100,000 people is a lot of tickets, right? It's not like a, a movie. I mean, it is, but but it's it's significant, <laughs> right? So then exactly. you're thinking, okay, yeah. so they got to do this thing as part of professional development as, you know, a minor public figures or whatever you want to call it. Or That's where I feel I am, yeah. Right. And it's difficult. What I'm trying to find evidence where that's not the case. So that's why in the monologue, I talked about how NPR looked at their results after they left and there was no change in the actual listens that they got from Twitter, even when they went off Twitter, because everyone it's it's what other people post. It's not what you post that ends up getting you the attention. So there are some professional considerations that matter for a few people, right, for whom (laughs) their ability to publicize is part of their job, right? That's not necessarily for the uh, someone getting a job as an accountant or doing soil consulting for a permaculture farm. You know, these are not necessarily things that need huge social media presences or foraging. If you're going to do a foraging class, you know, it, it depends, on what you're doing. But I mean, for me, I had the same feeling you did in 2013 when I saw that Facebook was running advertisements off people's profiles without them even knowing it. It was strange stuff where they would say, you know, oh, look, Doug is in a Starbucks now, or people were finding their profiles or things that they posted being used to make money, you know, buy Facebook. Oh, look, he's in a Starbucks. Let's blast everyone that he's in a Starbucks or that he just said he was. So they can kind of say, well, he said it. It wasn't surveillance, but it's like, (laughs) shoot, you know, if they're using your thing without your permission. And I said it was an ethical problem for me that even though Facebook was good, maybe for me to publicize a reading or a new book or this, that my being on made people who followed me vulnerable to being used in ways that they didn't understand. So I thought that my presence on the platform as a media theorist in particular, who talks about digital hygiene, that my presence on the platform, my invitation to others to like my page or follow my page on Facebook was making them vulnerable to things that I didn't feel okay about making them vulnerable too. So I couldn't do anything ethically, but leave the platform. And that was my my justification for leaving it. I didn't really care. I wasn't being harmed. I don't read Facebook. I'm not going to read the the angry arguments that show just how horrible many people in my own town are when they're arguing about whether a field should be grass or turf. You know, it's just, it's horrific the way people are because I can excuse it because I go, okay, it's not them. They're just crazy when they're on these platforms and not look, but I couldn't subject others. Now, 10 years later, and I guess I forgot, I feel that Twitter is as bad. Twitter was not as bad in 2013, 2014 as it is now. It was, it didn't have the same like kind of surveillance stuff. It wasn't as heavy. It didn't go into as many areas of my life. It was like tweeting. I miss it. It was okay. I joined in 
2008, I think. And, uh, yeah. you know, the Arab Spring stuff, I was like, yes. And, yeah. and now it's gone all the way around to the other yeah. end of things. And It was good for Arab Spring, Iranian Revolution, Occupy. It was really a pretty good, I mean, no, it didn't allow for these movements to continue, but it was still a good tool at the beginning of, of gathering, right? But it changed, mm-hmm. you know, and that's what I wrote about when once I saw, and he's my friend, Evan Williams' face on the cover of the Wall Street Journal with the number 4.3 billion under his head, which was how much he made the day that that at Twitter had its IPO, I thought this guy's fucked, right? How is he going to deliver 100x, 1000x to us or to his shareholders without screwing up the platform, which they did, right? It became an algorithmic surveillance cesspool. Cesspool, exactly. Yeah. And even then I stayed, right? Even then, <laughs> because at least Dorsey and the people I know, every, there's a lot of uh, uh, controversy, but at least they were trying, working to somehow mitigate some of those effects to regulate or the word, you know, that people are afraid of a censor. But they were trying to moderate in some way some of the kinds of stuff that was coming online to prevent it from going totally down that track until they get bought by Musk, who decided decides, no, no, that track is the track. That's the better direction. And the minute he takes over, he's like, I am the, he didn't say it like this, but he he enacted it. He is the troll in chief. I'm going to be the meanest, angriest, loudest bully on this platform. I'm going to suggest that Nancy Pelosi's husband, on my first day at work, I'm going to suggest that he was with a gay lover who, that this was a lover's yeah. spat and not real, or this, you know, all these crazy conspiracies and meanness and threaten all the advertisers that if you leave, I'm going to do thermonuclear shame on you. I'm going to use a platform to close your friggin' corporation. It's like, oh, and look what we got. We got this angry, horrible, sick, sick, sick platform. And it's like, no, I have the luxury of, I could retire at this point, you know? I mean, if Social Security starts and and I can keep my teaching thing going, I can survive on just, uh, you know, and, and lose my career, whatever. You know, cancel right. me, whatever it is, I'll be okay. And I know many people can't, but I'm going to take that luxury. But I'm also looking at it practically, that I leave that platform. I'm not saying leave everything. People think that leaving social media means leaving the internet, right? When I left Facebook in 2013, I got a lot of emails. Oh my God, you're going off the net. It's like, no, there's still an internet. There's still this discord, right? You create a firewall or whatever it is, a a paid walled garden of some kind, whether it's two bucks a month or one buck a month, or you've got to ask to join, you know, (laughs) something like that. You got to write a one sentence about why you want to be in a community or you accept that there's community standards. Even Reddit, even Reddit and Metafilter, which are public, are monitored and moderated in such a way as to lead to a, a higher quality, less toxic kind of conversation. The idea that any of us needs to be involved in a global conversation on a daily basis is really just, that's the crazy part. It's beyond Dunbar numbers. It's just crazy. You're only going to get brittle. You're only going to get crazy. So um, yeah, I, I think it's fine for everyone to be off all infinitely scaled social media and just to find the nooks and crannies that where things make sense. And if you do well in your nook and cranny, I promise you, if you need to scale, you will scale naturally from community to community. 
That makes a lot of sense. I think I, I wanted to get off Twitter is uh, within the first month of, of Musk purchasing because of the abuse my uh, black friends were experiencing on there. Mm. But I held out because in journalism and in PR, it sort of was still a place to be. But I basically just let it sit there. But I feel very close to wanting to shut it down. And and I have found purpose here in the Discord, as well as Mighty Networks platforms with uh-huh. small groups have been interesting. So I take your point about the infinitely scaled versus the walled garden. And my Substack is free or paid, but you have to pay if you want to comment. So that's how I've done yeah. it for now. That was the point of this whole medium is that it was not just decentralized, but distributed. If we want to recreate, you know, mainstream television on this stuff, then it defeats the whole point, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Thank you so much. All right. I'll see you out in the real world. I hope so. I'll make it to New York one of these days. <laughs> All right. Or I'll walk up to Toronto. It's not that far. Okay. <laughs> All right. Be good. <laughs> um, who do we got? Quidam. Hello. I am just super glad to be here. My real name is Dave. I just hey, have Dave. a thing about putting pretend names on Discord, I guess. Super excited to be here. Love the community. I am a theology professor living outside of Boston. Wow. And I want to talk about your monologue of changing the register. Mm. And I have a, I'll throw a couple balls into the air here, and then I would just love to, I'm also a musician, so I'd love to hear you like riff <laughs> on, on some of that stuff. So I actually am just coming from a class where I've been really frustrated with this class, and I feel like they see the professor as like an enemy. And so I was talking to them about like, no, I see us as like co-collaborators. We're like experiencing things together. Uh, which of course brings up like, oh, I'm just trying to change the register of what's happening in the classroom. Mm. And you know, even broader than that is like one of the other groups I'm part of is this like what we call theopoetics. So trying to change the conversation in religion from like theology, which is about like logic and logos and like a correspondence theory of reality to poetics, which is like doing and making, right? Like that's, that's what poetics is, is a Mm -hmm. making from, from the Greek and like possibility. So it occurs to me after I heard your monologue on that, that like, oh, that's what we're doing. We're like trying to change the register from this logical correspondency, absolutist kind of thing to more of a possibility and opening and doing kind of thing. And so I was also thinking I was looking at my, I have nothing sacred here, your book. It looks like this is the 20th anniversary of that book, by the way. Uh, Congratulations. Yeah, it, uh, obviously it worked really, it worked really well to create a more <laughs> peaceful relationship between civilization and Judaism. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> your work is done here. <laughs> but it occurs to me too that like, that's what you were trying to do in that book even was kind of changing the register. Right of of kind of Judaism or religion and spirituality more broadly speaking, and so I don't know. Maybe I just I'm curious to hear you think a little bit about that some more. And I I think the question that I often get is like, why do you bother teaching religion anymore? Because they, like it's it's not an important category. And my response is usually like, well, I think religion is just or spirituality just relates to the things that make us human. And so I don't know. Maybe you I, I would love to hear you just like think out loud about how, how you know, nothing sacred relates to changing the register, relates to anything going on in the world today, and like whether it's worth <laughs> what the value still is in these traditions and changing the traditions. 
Well, I mean, to start, let me start in the self-deprecating way. I mean, Nothing Sacred, the book, was great in a lot of ways, because what I was trying to do was point out to so-called lapsed Jews that we were still practicing the core tenets of Judaism in our social justice work, in our kind of progressive activities and ideologies. And so that was all really nice. And it was nice to show people where Judaism came from, that it wasn't meant as a religion, but kind of an anti-religion as a way of getting over religion and moving towards a much more of, a, of an internalized, you know, spiritual approach to life. Where I think Nothing Sacred falls short is that it favors sort of the intellectual and social activist path over the more embodied prayer spiritual one. In other words, in that book, I kind of argue, yeah, you can go to synagogue and pray and have these wonderful sort of Grateful Dead-like, you know, experiences if you need them, but only do that as much as you have to, to fuel yourself so you can get out into the real world and actually do the real purpose of Judaism, which is make the world a better place. Let's get on with the actual work. That every minute that you're spending singing in synagogue with people and feeling good is one minute that you're not doing the work, that you're not doing the good. And it's the same as uh, what I was talking about before. Um, I feel like I um, overemphasized the universal values and abstractness of the, the Jewish process to the exclusion of the importance of localness and even local gods, if you want to call it that. I was so sort of proud of the way Judaism denied everyone their local gods. I was arguing that that part of why Jews are are oppressed and hated wherever they go is because they don't believe in whatever the local gods are. They believe in their own abstract god that knows no place or anything. It's just everywhere. And it has no name or or it does, but you can't say it. And it's like so unknowable. And how local people always resent that because because we don't accept whoever their provincial god is or local god. And now I'm realizing, you know, that the local gods do matter. I mean, as long as you don't really, really, really believe in them as, as things. I mean, the, the local stuff, your connection to your place, these identities do matter to people. If you take away their identities, which is what we've seen in the American liberal project to some extent, if you take away their identities, they're going to go extreme. They're either going to go MAGA, blood and soil, or they're going to go to the other side and become intersectional identitarians, right? Where I am this, that, that you find the exact decimal of what you're overlapping intersection is or your your identity politics ends up defining you more than your common humanity with others. So there's there's negative effects to not embracing the uh, people's local felt embodied reality. So while yes, nothing sacred was about changing the register on uh, religion and turning these faiths into something much more open source and participatory and changing and ever changing and saying that the Jewish continuity is not continuity to the way your parents did it. It's continuity to the process itself, to change itself, to life itself. I was so, and still at that, at that point in my life, I guess I was still developing intellectually and philosophical way that I lost 
I lost track of the embodied, which I'm only kind of reclaiming now that I'm understanding the team human thing is we are embodied. That's part of it. You know, why bother teaching religion and spirituality anymore? I would say because the only thing we have different than the AIs that they're building is our faith that we are different right? That's the only thing that will remain consistent, right? That we have faith that as they learn to do this, there's one more thing that we can do. Well, yes, your computers can think and you can play chess and you could do Go, but you can't know what it's like to sip a cup of coffee. And then it's like the AI, well, I do actually know. Now I know. And this is what it's like, all right, you can't wonder, you know, you can't deal with ambiguity. You can't deal with this. You can't do that. And I think in the end, our difference the ability to distinguish to distinguish human beings from their utility value under capitalism requires some amount of faith that we will continue to be able to do that. And that's where religion and spirituality come in for me. You know, the Sabbath, which I talked a lot about in Nothing Sacred. I love the Sabbath because it's a an affirmation that human beings matter, that you don't have to do anything, that you're allowed to take one day a week and celebrate the fact that you are alive, that as Mr. Rogers would say, you know, you are special just the way you are. You don't need to do anything. And that's really the best thing that religion does is it it declares, it affirms that this life is sacred, that we are sacred, that no thing is sacred is what I really meant in, in nothing sacred. But that nothingness, doing nothing, affirms the sacred. The only way to affirm the sacred is to have faith that even when you have nothing and no evidence, it's still a sacred. So yeah, I'm the older I get, the more important I think some spirituality is a religion. I'm using them interchangeably, but but whether you want to do your your spirituality in a coherent religion or whether you want to do it in something that wouldn't be called a religion, it doesn't matter. I never liked religions. You know, I liked Torah, but I never liked Judaism once they made it an ism because it wasn't really supposed to be. It was just they made it Judaism because they they were getting persecuted and needed to look like they had a religion that was like everybody else's. That was kind of the whole reform movement in Germany it was like, look, how about if we just make it look like a church? We'll put in an organ. We'll put people in pews. And then they won't be as alienated by this stuff that we're doing. I mean, it didn't work long term, but it was a good, <laughs> it was a good idea. But it kind of confused Jews and made them think that they had a religion that was like more like a religion rather than a, a practice that was really more like uh, Buddhism. But yeah, and finally, changing the register. I mean, for me, what you're talking about is sort of changing the register from from probability to possibility, you know, from certainty to questions, which is, again, that's the anti-AI one. The AI is about resorting to the mean, finding the most probable outcome, the most probable answer, whereas human beings living life is about finding new possible outcomes. And I like living, you can't do it all the time, but I like living in the space of possibility, which is the dangerous place, right? Possibility. It seems more dangerous. It's actually probability. Certainty is the dangerous place. If you think you know, you're going to get whopped in the back of the head. It's the people who don't know, who stay vulnerable, who can see behind them because they're open, they're feeling. It's so hard hard to realize that being more sensitive to everything, 360 degree sensitivity is a safer place to be because you're going to feel it coming before it gets there than the, uh, the place of certainty. 
it's tricky. And religion and spirituality for me are ways of training people in and practicing moving into that a much more uncertain space of faith. I have faith that when I move my foot forward, there will be ground there to meet it. You know, that's every step is, is an act of faith. And once you adopt that, it actually seems harder, but I think it gets easier. Thank you for that. I, there's so much in there that resonates with like what I see myself as trying to do and how to think about a lot of these things. Yeah, lots to think about. I mean, even just that point, like distinguishing our humanness from our utility value is like, that's why we should do these things is like, we all just get together and like affirm that. I, know. I mean, I've come to the place where like, that's what communal prayer is, is just yeah. coming together and affirming that like, we're here together and that's what matters. Who we're praying to is far less important. I know. The, it's interesting. The 12-step program is getting more and more interesting to me as an alternative style of religion. You know, it's a, 12 Steps is almost like anarchic religion because it's all totally localized. Everyone's got their own little group. And there's this book that you kind of follow for the rules, but it's pretty Quaker. It's pretty anything goes. And like, I was thinking like, what would it be just to do a 12 step of like just meanness or 12 step of of whatever it is that that however we could define the thing that we are addicted to right you know you get a 12 step social media or a 12 step but just to get to do the 12 steps even if you're not addicted to a, a medicine or a, a you know a plant or something or a powder but you're just addicted to you know, kind of western civilization or addicted to achievement <laughs> or you know what i mean whatever it is cuz yeah, i yeah. feel like our society needs to go through that 12 step and that that truth and reconciliation the acceptance of a higher power the admitting that you're kind of helpless to this admitting that you're never going to get over it that it's part of the human condition you know i really like that path that that path and that that yeah as 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 who's that saying that Brenna or Lindsay that localized self-organized consent-based program is really powerful to me and I, I don't know maybe where are you where do you teach I teach at a little Catholic school in New Hampshire oh actually I live just outside of Boston though oh so you're not like at Harvard Divinity School or something you know no, there's this guy no. there he's a friend of ours I sound like the, the, the friggin uh, <laughs> Don Carleone there he's a friend of ours the friend of team human the Chaplain guy at Harvard MIT, whose name is escaping me. What's his Greg name? Greg Epstein. Right, Greg Epstein. Oh yeah, okay. Talks about a lot of this stuff, and he's very local to you. He's you know lives outside Boston somewhere. We should mm -hmm. have him on on Team Human, and then maybe invite you to come talk too, because um, these are the issues that he's directly wrestling with: is sort of religion in the age of Team Human, in the age of all this media, and how do we how do we retrieve its best features in a world that's so kind of opposed or sees these things as as statist or, you know, as institutional. In an anti-institutional age, how do you retrieve the real values and functions of spirit and religion? You know, and it's a big question. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. I, I, that'd be awesome. I would love to have a conversation cool. with him. I've heard, like, we're in the same, some of the same circles, but I don't think I've ever actually interacted with him yet. Well, thank you. I don't want to cool. take up the whole time. Yeah, let's talk more because I'm also trying to figure out, I'm trying to figure out Christianity and there's there's aspects to it that are still confusing to me. But it turns out, you know, I've spoken with like really advanced Jesuits and there's aspects that are still confusing to them. So I'm not alone. You're allowed to stay confused. <laughs> if we figure it all out, uh, if we figure it all out, then we've, then we've lost the plot. Oh, good. All right. All right. Thank you. So we don't have to. Okay, excellent. All right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Thanks a bunch. All right. Thank you. Hey, Gandhi King Greta Love, 
Who is that? Hi, Doug. This is Gary Crane, an old neighbor hey! of yours from long ago. Yeah. What you just said the last 10 minutes or so is so profound. This is a process question. Is there any way of getting a transcript? Josh would know. Yeah. After we release the show, we can uh, email you a transcript. Yeah. Really profound insights. Thank you. Cool. But what you remembered is probably enough. <laughs> you don't look no, back. No, you need, look back and it's going to look a whole lot less profound, I promise. <laughs> oh, no, I, I don't think so. By the way, I just sent you a uh, proposal to, to reconsider my, uh, my offer to help with a couple of speakers on nonviolent resistance, which can relate to your focus on working locally as well as nationally. Yeah, nonviolent resistance. I'm really interested in that now, especially as a lot of arguments are being made that the only possible resistance to, you know, whatever we call it, uh, you know, Israeli occupation and this divide and stalemate between um, Gaza and Israel is, you know, violent resistance is what would a nonviolent resistant campaign look like and would it work? A lot of people are saying, you know, the age, I'm glad you've got your, your name on, on this discord is, you know, Gandhi King, Greta lover. But there's a lot of people arguing that the age of non, nonviolent resistance is over, that it doesn't work anymore. And we have to do, you know, violent resistance. And I would love to speak to people who are, you know, more knowledgeable about the methods of nonviolent resistance and how they do work especially in this moment. You know, I've got a lot of friends who keep sending me um, how to blow up a pipeline, you know, which is about, you know, the, really asking the question of, uh, is violence against infrastructure real violence? Is it necessary? And I know I have some friends who would say, oh, no, it's, the, it's on the path to dehumanization and violence of people because there's always collateral damage. Well, I blew up the pipeline. Yes, a couple of guards died, but they should have understood if they were going to work for a guarding uh, pipeline company that they were putting themselves at risk. And, and I don't know, I haven't learned enough or thought enough about styles of nonviolent resistance to understand how to contextualize uh, violent and nonviolent resistance. So I, I will check out your email and see who there I might be able to talk to about, about how that works. Because I like to think of myself as a pacifist, but I don't know if I would be if push came to shove. I think I would hurt somebody to protect my loved ones or what I'm not going to just lie down. So I just don't know. I don't even know how, how to think, how to begin thinking about it. So um, yeah. it'll be interesting. Would you like a one or two minute response to that? Sure. So there's lots of empirical research that addresses that issue of, of uh, to what extent violent versus nonviolent is effective. And Erica Chenoweth who's at Harvard has done the most on this and, and there's actually been some pretty thorough studies showing that once you even go to property damage, you're much less effective, significantly less effective than if you stay strictly nonviolent. And uh, she's done the the real game changer research studying 323 efforts to overthrow fascist regimes from 1900 through the Ukrainian uh, Maidan revolution and discovered that if you were the nonviolent ones were twice as effective as the violent ones. And the good news is that you only need a 3.5% of the general population actively involved to have a, almost a 90% chance of success. And in the case of climate uh, justice, where you, and that was to get the army, which was always loyal to the fascist government, to defect to the people's side. But in the case of climate justice, where the Pentagon has already said that uh, climate change is our greatest national security threat, we don't have to worry about the army. So it, the founders of Extinction Rebellion and, and myself and others pretty much agree that you probably only need 2% or so of the public actively engaged to have an 80% chance of winning. The civil rights movement actually never had more than a percent and a half 
but of course they took 15 years to really succeed. Well, even 15 years would be great. I mean, and that's the interesting thing. So then, you know, taking it out of the Middle East, because that's such a fraught one right now. I mean, the, the cause I've been very interested in for the last 10 or so years is the Uyghurs in China, because I had a, uh, a Uyghur Chinese student who was in America and wrote a paper, and it was about bilingual education in the Uyghur province mm -hmm. and why that would be a good idea. Chinese government had spyware on the student's computer and then put that student's parents and aunt and uncle in a concentration camp or whatever you call it, a detainment re-education camp, and said they wouldn't yeah. let them out until the student came back so that student could be put in the camp instead. And it's like, man, and there's a few million of them, right? How many million? A hundred million? I forgot of the Uyghur Chinese in China who are in this in this situation. And it's like, yeah. how do you do that? And then it's like what you're saying, I guess it would be are two or three or four percent of Americans even willing to say, oh, well, we we want to put pressure in some way. We want to stop paying China so much money or stop consuming Chinese goods and or or a boycott or what what would do it? I mean, certainly not just the peep, the Uyghurs, a hundred percent of them are behind their own liberation, but it would be interesting to see how this how this could be applied and and then why it isn't being. Well, you'd be interested to know that my tech team was the first to develop a simple tool, website friendly tool that actually catalyzes moral courage at scale. That wouldn't be probably relevant to China, but it was certainly uh, it certainly has proven in beta testing to be very useful in two major European keep it in the ground campaigns, and I'm sure would be equally effective in, uh, in the United States. So my kind of mantra is something Gandhi once said, that the science of nonviolent resistance is young, and the most important discoveries are yet to be made. And the tragic irony is that there has, is that the science of nonviolence, science is the operative term, means that there needs mm -hmm. to be much more of a culture of experimentation in nonviolent resistance movements, which is sorely lacking. Right. I know. And that's, that's the brittleness of this moment that we're really, that's the main purpose of Team Human isn't necessarily to figure out that answer, although it'd be really interesting to discuss and, and experiment, but to, again, to engender the spirit of inquiry, the softness, the openness, yeah. the, the social and rapport-based prerequisites to engaging with problems in the way that you're, in the way that you're saying. So thank you. And th thank you for that. Maybe we uh, bring up Vinny. Hey, welcome to Team Humans Discord Kibitz Room. Thank you for having me on here. Always a pleasure. And, um, you know, the, the conversation earlier, you mentioned about the uh, Jewish religion not accepting local gods. And it reminded me of um, a conversation in the Discord I brought up a while back about the alphabet versus the goddess. And mm. uh, Leonard Schlein is an author. And... Um, since that time, I stumbled on, I'm in a graduate program for Foresight at the University of Houston, and um, I was introduced to Rain Eisler about a year yeah. ago and The Chalice and the Blade. And so one of the things that I find gives me hope is this idea of macro history and the fact that, you know, we went from this partnership society to domination society and the influence of like alphabets and, and written scripture on how we perceived spirituality. And anyway, I, I just wanted to kind of bring that up and kind of, I know Shalane passed away years ago, but uh, Raina Eisler is still alive and, and would love to hear her on your show sometime. Right. And, or she at least was. hear your thoughts on that macro history. Yeah. I had her on actually. I met her 
at a conference a few years ago, and then she came on when she did her last book. And it's all still way, way current. And we really go pretty deep into the team human, applying the team human ethos to it. I mean, she was really good on, um, especially on the way that kind of metallurgy, she looks at metallurgy as the moment that we kind of changed from chalice to blade. And it's really interesting. And there's other, uh, I've been reading other people who talk about that when we went from the, um, which is a book about mushrooms. That's, uh, Shoot, I forgot the title of it now. But she talks about, you know, how we changed from the sort of the living staff to the blade. You know, the living staff, the the stick, it was still a, a masculine icon, but it had shoots and things growing off it. It was, you know, the stick as fertility rather than the stick as a divider. It was more connected fertility growing kind of a thing. And it was interesting the the way it shifted and, and um Rianne talks a lot about that, about that too. Shlaine mentions that at one point too, um, you know, like the, the, the serpents were the symbol for like health and whatnot, but yet in the monotheistic Bibles, the snake is a symbol of the devil um, and this kind of movement away from the feminine. Right. I'll look for that episode with Rain. I I listen pretty religiously, just (laughs) pardon the the terminology. And I'm, I will look that one up because I don't believe I've, I've heard it. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting on the surface. I've been personally dissing or dissing or blaming Judaism for some of the abstractness or certainly the way that I've been looking at it and the alphabet and the project of Western civilization, you know, which has just been a series of abstractions, originally abstracting God, then abstracting language, then abstracting the market and everything else. And then rather than just accepting and constantly, as if you look back at Torah, they keep wanting you to do, is to keep remembering that these are abstractions and to keep testing them against your lived experience, your family, your friends, your your chavara. We, especially in a social media age and a digital age, we fetishize the abstraction itself. And that's part of the kind of unmodulated autism of the the digital age is that we celebrate the pure autism, which is beautiful, this kind of systems understanding and rise above and see the map and understand these maps from all these different dimensions. But then we need the grounded people to remind us, yes, but the map is not the territory. It's really useful, but come back here with us, do some rave dancing, you know, <laughs> make love, you know, touch dirt. And that part of it, that we got to keep iterating it back through reality rather than trying to, you know, continually exponentialize away from reality. And the scarier the real world looks, in other words, the angrier that abused people are, the sicker the environment becomes, the less sustainable the oceans are, the more it stimulates that urge in the abstract personality to rise up yet a further. Let's get to an asteroid. Let's get onto the server. Let's get away from this before it catches up with me. And um, I don't see it as pessimistic to argue that there is no escape, you know, and that no escape 
is required rather than trying to escape how do you embed you know how do you return how do you accept you know that that we are in this together which is the i think the sad and some level but wonderful realization of team human you know can't live with them can't live without them right where we <laughs> like it or not we are your team this is it this is all you got uh, the other people around you so either sooner or later you're going to realize you know that all you got is love that's the only i hate to call it even weapon uh, that's the only tool that's the only modality that we have to solve these things and it's just a matter of having the um, the sense of courage danger safety and creativity to apply it you know to apply it to all things but um we'll see you know we'll see it's it's you know the script is not written i don't think and so it, it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out i agree completely i uh i'll leave with one last thought and and i really appreciate your your recent discussions of mushrooms and kind of mycelium and kind of this this consciousness conversation it's actually led to conversations with my wife and uh, life partner and she came up with a an interesting thesis or, or hypothesis that i think you might find funny or interesting is that what if the mushrooms put us here specifically to burn off the carbon that they were unable to digest early on in our planet's evolution <laughs> oh my well, it'd be as logical a story of the origin of life as possible. I just hope that when we're done doing that, that they partner with us in a way that helps us maintain some some aspect of our little personalities, because um, we're interesting. We're interesting. I guess as long as we continue eating them, right, they will... Um, <laughs> Yes. They will continue supporting us. I just am really concerned we're not giving them the information back because we sequester our poop. You know, we we shunt it off to other places and put poison on it. When I think the mushrooms kind of need our poop as a feedback mechanism to know what what we learned and didn't learn from them so they could adapt their curriculum accordingly. So I'm hoping somebody somewhere is pooping on the mushrooms so they can um, <laughs> they can record our progress. <laughs> But thanks, Vidi. That's actually a nice, uh, a nice way to to end this with the fertility, the fertility of poop and possibility over the the stagnant certainty of a constipated uh, world. This is uh, you've been in the kibitz room of Team Human with the team. Don't you want to be with these people, all you listeners? Of course you do. Join us. Leave your field to flower. And uh, you do that by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and uh, we love you. All right, see you soon.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.